so I won't beat around the bush for too long. As you heard in my last episode, after I first made contact with Ron Sampson, he went through each episode of this podcast, and he got in touch with John Gosh Sr., Johnny's dad. After John heard a few episodes, I was granted with his contact information. I didn't do much editing after I recorded our talk, so most of what you're going to hear today is very raw and candid. My own take, I found John Gosh Sr. to be a total gentleman. He's a father, he was close with his son, and he loved him very much. My personal take, any theory that exists on the internet that implicates Johnny's dad and his disappearance in any way, needs to stop. I know that we're at a point now where a lot of people listen to this podcast, which I'm extremely grateful for, and that some of you may not agree with me. But I ask you to listen to my talk with John. Really listen. That's why I only did minimal editing for time. I think you're going to find it eye-opening. I did. Questions will be answered on what happened on the morning of September 5th, 1982, the supposed Noreen lookalike who went with John to meet Paul Benassi, and Paul Benassi's credibility, which up until now I had believed. You may notice, too, I was a little nervous during this call. I didn't quite know what to expect. After all, I took it upon myself to investigate this story. But I do think this call had been a long time coming. This is episode 21 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. So I guess um, my first question right out of the gate would be just, um, can you recount your morning for me on September 5th, 1982? I will do that with the best of my recollection. <laughs> and it's you know, been 35, 36 years. And right. anyway, <clears throat> there seems to be a few discrepancies. So I'm going to kind of tell you Exactly what I remember, okay. and I don't. I don't remember a phone call at all during the evening. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I got a phone call from one of the neighbors wondering where their Sunday morning paper was, and I said I don't know, but I will. I will check, <clears throat> and that's when I went to Johnny's rooms to check on him, possibly that he overstepped, which he never, never did. Uh-huh. So. I went and jumped in my car. I didn't walk. <clears throat> so I jumped in the car and drove up to Markort where his papers had, had started being delivered there instead of up on 45th and Ashworth, <clears throat> 42nd Ashworth. Mm-hmm. And, but I saw the wagon first, and so I stopped and looked in the wagon, saw the papers there, and I went, hmm, that's strange. So then I drove over to Farm Crest, or Frankel Crest, because he had that small street too on his route. 
and didn't see anything anywhere. Um, came back to the house and told Maureen, I said something's wrong, can't find Johnny, call, call the cops. And then I went out and started combing up on Woodland a little bit, but then I went and got the papers real quick and delivered them to the neighbors. Okay. And none of the neighbors were out, so I didn't talk to anybody saying, hey, did you stay here or heard anything or anything like that. And then by the time I got all the papers done, came back to the house, then a few minutes later, the policeman showed up. Okay, and and you had said uh, in the past before it, it it was about forty five minutes or so before they actually arrived at the house. The cops somewhere in that area, but it took me probably that long to do the route. Okay. Also, by doing it myself, and I was actually driving the car and throwing the bundles out. And some of them I didn't even put rubber bands on because I was trying to figure out what was going on and um but everybody got their paper that morning yeah and that was like when i had read that in one of the early um newspaper articles um my first thought was just that um you know you probably your first assumption would not be that anything bad had happened to him it would just be that like you know he'll he'll he's you know, screwing around somewhere or something. That would probably be the first, like the more, that that would probably be the more realistic assumption instead of like somebody's taken him, you know? Yeah, I wouldn't have thought that because he didn't. He took care of his paper out. He he didn't go screw around. Now, in the mornings anyway, he had a afternoon paper out and once in a while he would stop at the Burge house and chatter or something like that. There was no big time limit on that because I think the papers had to be delivered by 5.30 or 6 o'clock at night. So he had time to, to mess around if he wanted to. But, okay. And he didn't do that very often either because he he was a responsible kid and uh, cared about a route and cared about um, achieving his blue ribbons every month and, and um, getting awards and all that stuff from his um, supervisors. Mm-hmm. And you had listened uh, to episode 16 when uh, I got to talk to Chris Burge. Mm-hmm. And so what were, what were your thoughts on that? Because Chris had said to me that like the reports, like in the movie and in like all the reports are wrong, that Johnny didn't cut through the back up the churchyard and walk on Ashworth Road. Chris insists that Johnny just walked straight down onto Marcourt Lane because he saw him cross his driveway. Well, <clears throat> at one time, Johnny did go through on Ashworth and go that way. But his paper route, and I know he changed that. He, he called his supervisor and said, hey, why don't you just drop off my papers up there because I go different directions. And so apparently they, they got that approved and they dropped off his papers up there. Um, okay. Even though there was a lot of chatter about the corner of 42nd and Ashworth that morning, I think the Burge kid was totally right. I went with Johnny on his paper route 
most of the time, not not all the time, <clears throat> because he just like just like that morning, uh, the night before, um, he hollered good night from that we had a uh, a loft area over top of our family room that you could look down over top of the family room, mm-hmm. and he just walked up over there and said, hey, good night. Um, I said, give me a call in the morning or break me up and more. I'll go with you. <clears throat> he said, oh, maybe not, or whatever. I forgot what he said. But he just said, because um, he had a, f- a friend coming the next morning, we were going to go out to the lake. Right. And which we did a lot. And they would bring a different different friend with them when they would go and we'd teach them all how to water ski and stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, either he said, I'm going to do it myself real quick. Let dad sleep a little bit, but that's as that's as far as I know. Oh, okay. Um, and something else that Chris had said to me, I don't think I included it in the episode, but um, he did say it later that um, that later that morning he he tells me that his dad was outside in the front yard, and uh, I, I guess Chris wasn't there to see this, but he insists that you came up and you were like cussing up a storm like oh fucking johnny uh, where where is he and like that kind of a thing um i yeah first of all i wouldn't wouldn't have said that about him um and i drove my car when i came up there to find the paper out get the paper out i may have been up there with car kind of trying to do a search or see what i could see or whatever and I might have been just totally pissed at the West Moines Police Department. <clears throat> but I wasn't cussing out Johnny for anything. Okay. Um, so it might have been just misunderstood or whatever. Okay, so maybe that's just a miscommunication that Chris heard from his dad. Maybe, like, you weren't... that that If, if you were, like, you know, pissed off or cursing or anything like that, yeah. probably, it probably it wasn't directed at Johnny. It was probably, like, directed no. at the police. And Unlikely. yeah, okay. <clears throat> All right. That makes more sense. And um, yeah. I guess I'm wondering, um, do you suspect that it was anybody who worked at the Des Moines Register? Sarah, I would say that that is probably 99.9% true. But I, you know, just don't know. Yeah, true. Um, somebody had to know him for him to, but he he was he was such a kind and loving kid that <clears throat> if somebody would ask him a question or something like that, he would try and answer him or talk to him or whatever. Mm-hmm. And if, especially if they said they 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 needed some help, he would be there to help them. So I don't know. Yeah, what, I mean uh, that's kind of what, what that that's kind of what Chris uh, suggested to me too because um, Chris tells me that when he and his dad got home, they saw the wagon sitting there, and the wagon was completely undisturbed, like there was no sign of a struggle or anything like that. It was just sitting there, like perfectly still, and. Um, his thought was that, and he never heard any commotion or anything like that when he was on his route. So like his assumption was always that 
it, Johnny got into the car willingly, and because maybe it was somebody that he knew at the register. But when I got there, the two bundles of paper mm-hmm. that they had in bundles, and I forget if there was fifteen or twenty, but anyway, they had the exact number of papers for a particular round. Mm-hmm. And he had cut one bundle, and the other bundle wasn't cut. And usually, I'll cut both of them, wrap them up real quick and uh, put all of the uh, wrapping paper into a separate bag and throw that away when he got home. But that, his, his bag was gone. His okay. uh, paper bag. I see. So that was missing. So he must have had that <clears throat> around his neck. And as far as somebody not seeing the dog, that's another thing too. Mm-hmm. He would put he would put the dog, little miniature little Gretchen, put him in the bag, and she just loved it in there. And then he would put the bag in the in the the uh, wagon, and he'd pull along, and a little Gretchen would stick her nose out of corners, you know. And oh, so maybe so maybe she wasn't it, she wasn't like walking alongside. She was like probably right, riding right. inside of the wagon then. Oh, okay. That makes a lot, that makes sense too because um, that was always something that just seemed a little odd. To it would be a little difficult to have to drag a wagon and also like wrangle a, a dog too. Like I have a little mm-hmm. I have a little dog too, and he's hyper, and okay. it's like it, they're very hard to control, you know. So mm-hmm. that makes much more sense if if she was just kind of like riding inside the wagon. That that hadn't occurred to me. Yep. So hunkered down into the bag, you know. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, that makes much more sense then. I guess I'm wondering, like, at the time, did you suspect anybody? Like, at the register, was there anybody around that, it like, who lived in Des Moines or at the, worked at the register that seemed like a, a creep sort of a person that, you know, that you suspected? No, because the only contact we had with the paper was his district managers, which were... A, a couple of women and they were very nice and treated him nicely and everything else but as far as any guys now oldest son Joe he had a paper out too and I I think he had the same district manager these gals okay. don't know that for a fact I don't remember okay. but Joe kind of did his on his own he was older at the time and, and um, he was like 16 when he had his paper out but, Um, Have you ever heard of a guy who had worked at the register by the name of Wilbur Milhouse? I've heard that name, but I don't know much about it. Ron and I talked about it the other day, and um, he must have been a district manager out in that part of of the city before he was transferred to the east side, so I don't know. Okay. Because I'm just trying to figure out, because um, the guy who um, who I got in touch with, who he, he calls himself Yellow Bag, because he was, um, he was a paper boy at the time, and um, he, was, he lived on the east side of Des Moines, and uh, he would say to me that, that Wilbur Melhouse had become his circulation manager, and after Johnny disappeared, something that Melhouse would say more than once was 
nothing would have happened if he just kept his mouth shut. And um, he there there's no proof to anything, but I mean, it's entirely likely that Milhouse was just like a low life, just kind of taking credit for something uh -huh. that he didn't do. But um, so that was kind of what it, that was the first thing that made me think that it was something more local that maybe it was somebody who worked at the register that if um it that that maybe there was like a a a, a shady ring of guys who were sort of connected to the register because for this guy to say that more than once i don't know it's sort of like kind of drawing attention to himself a little bit but <clears throat> Do you know anything about that yellow bag or know any names or I, I, how old he is? Or? Yeah, I think he's uh, he was about 16 at the time in 1982. Um, I, th I think that's what he told me. Um, okay. He said that he had uh, worked uh, as he had been a paper boy for, a, I think, about five years. And um, he knew that Millhouse had been a circulation manager um, on the for for a district on the west side and um, he got, and I guess according to what Yellowbag told me um, Millhouse got transferred to a district on the east side and it was like it, it, that was like 2 weeks before Johnny disappeared and then he started like sort of making those sort of little comments uh, after that um, so I was wondering if like, cause this is a guy who he claimed that he knew Johnny. So I don't know if, if that's even, if, if that's possible, if Johnny would have even had contact with him or, um, because one thing that Chris told me too, was that he never really knew anybody who worked at the register. He didn't even know his circulation manager's name. He just kind of pick up picked up the papers at his corner and that was uh -huh. that was kind of it he never had contact with anybody at the actual newspaper yeah well i <clears throat> i don't think johnny had contact with those either just district managers and these type of people that come around and especially if you even even if you had were short on your papers and you called in Somebody else would bring it out. It wouldn't be a district manager unless they were in the area and they had extra papers. But <clears throat> um, the Millhouse name rings rings a bell, but I, I don't know if it's the Millhouse that worked for the Des Moines Register or another Millhouse that lived in Des Moines that might have been involved in public work or, okay. or police work or something like that. So. And, but that Wilbur, has, yeah. that name has come up many times. So. Okay. And another name that I mentioned for the first time in my last episode was a guy who worked at the piano store at the mall. Um, his name was Fred Sayer, and uh, who eventually he was arrested for pedophilia and went to jail for it. And uh, Chris was telling me that um, he would offer the boys money for to go to the movies and things like that, and he would sort of coerce them into doing, like, sexual stuff with him. And uh, Chris also told me that he had a couple of kids who were, like, living at his house. And so I, uh -huh. I was wondering if 
if that was somebody that Johnny had ever been in contact with or if Johnny would have if he ever like saw him at the mall or anything like that. He, he never ever pointed it out, pointed him out to me while we were at the mall or anything like that. Um, and never ever said anything about it. So, um, okay. Because usually, if there, there was somebody weird or something like that, you would usually point them out, saying, "Hey, I got a weird dude or something." I went with him quite often when he would go collect money from people. Because he would usually ask me, said, hey, I'm having a little problem with this person over there, you know, mm-hmm. to collect a dollar and a quarter or what the hell it was. It wasn't very much <clears throat> back then. And uh said, okay, I'll go with you. Yeah, and there was this one older lady that would just take like a half an hour of his time. And he said, you know, I got things to do. And <clears throat> will you go with me and, and make sure that she pays and so that we can get keep going instead of her bringing me in and pouring me a cup of water or tea or soda or whatever and sat there and want to talk. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I did. And plus I wanted to see who some of these people were that we didn't necessarily know to make sure that they were decent people. And yeah. So. Yeah. And um, what are your thoughts on Sam Soda? Because Sam Soda just seems like a really there's something that there's something like very mysterious about him like he just kind of uh-huh. just knows a lot of the things that were going on in that sort of underworld at the time so i want to know what what are your thoughts on sam soda i i really don't remember a whole lot about sam soda okay just that um just that he was a trip yeah. <laughs> and um that um if I met him face to face right now, I'd probably have to take a double take to remember much about him. <clears throat> but he had a lot of connections, good and bad. Yeah. Um, I think Sam was the one because I, I totally suspected the under underground people to be involved, or or the mafia, or anybody like this. <clears throat> I think it was Sam that made a connection with a mob person uh, by the name of Johnny Farrell um, that was Chicago-based Farrells that were Romani people. And we met him, we met him at a restaurant in Clive, Iowa, which is a suburb of, of Des Moines. And told him the situation. He said, want you to know something, Mr. Gosh, that we might do a lot of bad things or the people involved in this, these organizations, usually the prostitution, drugs, some of these things like that, but he said, we don't mess with kids. And he said, if I find out anybody has, I'll get right back to you. So it was kind of assuring that <laughs> that way and he, he was he really meant that. Yeah. Um, a lot of them are, are heavy Italian based people and they are family oriented people. So I'm guessing that's where it was coming from. Mm-hmm. I think Sam is the one that set that, that arrangement up. Um, didn't go very far, but he said he would check with all the underground people 
throughout the country and see if <clears throat> they knew anything and nothing ever came back. I see. And what do you think about, um, I, I, I want to know how you feel about Paul Benassi and his claim of having been involved. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> I went to the prison over in Lincoln, Nebraska. <clears throat> and didn't have anybody that was a lookalike or okay. anything else. <clears throat> I went with John DeCamp to the prison the first time. Okay. And just John DeCamp and myself, we went there. And when we got there and met Benassi, you know, I just said to him, you know, how tall, how, how tall was Johnny when you saw him? Um, and Benassi was probably five, 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 six, something relatively short. <clears throat> and he said, oh, it came up about my chin. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, and I said, okay. Well, Johnny was five, eight when he was kidnapped, five, nine, somewhere in that area. And so I, I knew that he was blowing some hot smoke. <clears throat> I asked the, uh, the guard at the prison, I said, what does he going to have in his room or in his uh, cell back there? He said, it's plastered with all kinds of newspaper articles on Johnny. I said, okay. <clears throat> so he studied this whole thing, trying, okay. trying to find a way to get out of here. He said, you okay. got it. That's, that's, I, I, <clears throat> you're, you just kind of confirmed of some suspicions that I've had recently. Um, some other people have sort of suggested maybe that's what he was really doing too. Um, so, uh, I had, um, somebody that I was talking to about this not so long ago, just being sort of suggested the idea to me that like, well, do you think maybe that Paul Benassi was trying to get out of jail and just didn't want to reenter the world being seen as a criminal? Maybe he wanted to be seen as like, a, a good Samaritan or somebody who is being forthright or, you know, something of that nature. And you think it was, maybe that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to just paint himself in a good light as just somebody who was trying to be a reformed citizen and be helpful or, and th like that kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But Nazi has had a lot of problems and probably still does. But anyway, all of his, <clears throat> problem when he was kidnapped and taken and all that type of stuff yeah. were real. Right. And and I'm sure that some of the characters that he met might have been who knows, he might have made him up or maybe not, I don't know. But all that I know is what he told me and I completely turned that kid off from that point on. So why did so why did the stories continue why did that continue then why does he why is he still part of the whole johnny gosh story like because the lady of the house decided this is the route she wanted to go and talking to the gundersons and all these other people that are <clears throat> out of my wackos okay so do you and, think do you think that maybe that's where a lot of the bad information has come from like a lot of the there's so many conspiracy theories and sure um maybe I mean, is, law is, enforcement didn't believe him yeah law enforcement never never believed him and 
they did research. They, they did a fair amount of research anyway. Um, and I don't know about John DeCamp if he ever believed him, but DeCamp was, was kind of riding on a rail too with that too, because he was, he used to be a senator or congressman in Nebraska. I know we went to the, the um, house or senate over there and I did a talk on missing kids over there and the camp escorted me through the chamber. So I guess I want to know too now, what, how do you feel about Noreen's claim that Johnny visited her in March of 1997? Well, that's a good question <clears throat> because about, I'm, I'm guessing about a month after this thing so supposed to happen, I got a call from law enforcement in Westmoreland, from Westmoreland Police Department. Mm-hmm. And they made a statement to me saying, hey, she wants to take have us go to your house, which I, I had sold at the time. Mm-hmm. And go in the basement underneath of the family room, the crawl space, and she said, that's where he, he buried buried the body. And I said, what? He said, yeah, isn't that something? He, uh, he was at her apartment a month ago, and now all of a sudden, he had been buried under the, the crawl space uh, before, right after it happened or whatever. Huh. I said, you got this shit, man. I said, Chalk another one up, so, and that's that's where it ended, and that's that's my believing, and that's big call West Wayne, and they also called me to do a um, you know test saliva test yep. for for the archive of DNA of parents of missing kids in case they would find a body. 30 years from now, 40 years from now, when, when I'm gone or whatever. And uh, this organization is based out of Texas, and then they're banking all this DNA down there in case anything shows up with missing kids. So I said, yeah, and I was in, in Connecticut on a project out there. Oh. And uh, so they came to my office and spent <clears throat> hours out there. Um, it was actually a local, local um, policeman from the Bridgeport, Connecticut area. Oh, wow. But, That's where um, I am. I, I mean, I'm in yeah. Bristol, but... Yeah. Yeah. Huh. yeah. I was in Bridgeport for about two and a half, three years almost. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> yeah. But anyway, um, and then shortly after that, there was a John Walsh... One of John Walsh's partners out of New York City came up and did an interview, um, a talk talk radio show, <clears throat> and we never made connections to get on the show or anything else. But but uh, anyway, they had asked her to Marine to take that DNA test too, and she refused to do it, which just stick the little thing in their mouth and pull it out, and that's it. <clears throat> um, God, I, I don't know. They, they were very really puzzled on too, Sam. You know, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. 
And well, what do you think about because like Noreen had I know that it's it's out of print now, but she self published a book in the year 2000. And um, do you think some of the the claims that are in that book, I know she didn't write the whole thing. I know that she had help writing it, but um, I, I think maybe some of the information that's in that book has maybe kind of hampered the investigation because there's a lot of uncorroborated information in there. I never bought the book and I never read one sentence out of it. So okay. I can't even comment on it. <laughs> I wasn't going to give her the satisfaction of of her doing something that was probably not correct. Okay. And, well, and I guess I'm wondering, do you think that anything that Noreen has said over the years has maybe kind of hurt the investigation? Oh, I'm sure it has. <clears throat> from, from the get-go, actually. But... There was an individual by the name of John Wooden. I don't know if you ever heard of him or not, and I, I don't know if he's even still alive. He was an older gentleman that came to Des Moines just a week or so after Johnny was kidnapped, or mm-hmm. several weeks after. And in defense of children was his his program that he started. And um, he made the statement saying, whatever you have to do, Keep story alive, do it. Because if you don't do it, law enforcement will forget about it in a few weeks and go their merry way. Well, she just lit onto that thing, and uh, which we needed mm-hmm. to keep it going. So um, all the programs and all that stuff did every almost every night of the week and on weekends traveled here, traveled there and doing this. But uh, it wasn't one bit fun. So yeah. and never knowing, never knowing if the SOB that kidnapped your son was sitting right there in the crowd. I kept looking to see if I would recognize the same person or persons at different meetings around to see if they would, was kind of a, following us around but never mm-hmm. came up with any conclusions so. um I, there's a few videos that are floating around on youtube um one of them is like an hour-long video called it's called america's mia children and there's a pretty long interview with you and noreen i guess this was made by uh, john Zelinsky, and um at one point in it you had said that a witness uh, in the front seat of the blue Ford Fairmont saw a brown manila envelope with presumably like a work order or a photograph or something like that. Um, do you know if that's true? Or I'm wondering, like, were you told to say that? Because that, that just seems like a, a detail that's not heard anywhere else. Yeah. I, I don't remember too much about it. I remember a little bit about the the envelope, as far as me seeing it, I, I may have said it because I was told to say it. This might have been something that a private investigator said to do this or okay. whatever. But they directed us to do certain things to, to get a a little bit of a 
ripple effect from law enforcement or something. But yeah, I, I don't know. Okay. And as far as the blue car, I never saw the blue car. So yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know where that would have come from. Yeah, I, because I guess I've I've always I, like I recently have been. Um, like I've been watching the film, like that the part in the film that explains that whole morning, and to me, it doesn't make sense that one car could go all the way down Ashworth, loop around, um, come back the other from the other direction, and then be suddenly appear on Marcourt Lane. Um, I really kind of think that the car that witnesses saw the blue Ford Fairmont on Ashworth was a totally different car than the car that picked up Johnny on Marcourt Lane. I, th I think it was two different cars. That just kind of, to me, that, that, that just seems a little more logical, actually. I think you're probably right. Because yeah. if Johnny had been taking that other route and had his papers dropped up there at the other corner, he wouldn't have been going up on Ashworth. Mm -hmm. So that car could have been sitting down at, by Woodland Avenue, waiting for him to go around the corner to see if I was going to be with him, or who knows. I, I, I mean, I'm just throwing stuff up in the air and whatever sticks, sticks, whatever doesn't, doesn't. But <clears throat> I'm just, yeah. Okay. And as far as people up there in the corner of Markort, you know, one kid said he looked out the window and saw this or saw that. I don't know. Don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that seems to be I, I, one thing I've talked about in the past couple episodes is um, you, you can call it the misinformation effect or the Mandela effect, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yep. It's basically the same idea. It's, it's like something happened, but people sort of um more like have like sort of a, a false memory of it or something mm -hmm. do you and noreen ever communicate anymore no ma'am no <laughs> no um so and i haven't, I, I haven't for 25 years or whatever i i see yeah there's a few um videos like a video there's a video interview with her on YouTube that was conducted by Ted Gunderson. It just seemed like every answer was very much directed, like like she was kind of told what to say. And I think um I think some and I think it's unfortunate because it for one thing it's bad information and secondly, I think you've kind of gotten a bad rap in it because it sort of painted you in a bad light there's like a lot of there's a lot of web sleuths out there with all kinds of conspiracy theories and um how do you respond to that like people who sort of like trying to trying to implicate you on something like this it just to me it just seems pretty unforgivable oh yeah oh well that let them have their their day you know yeah but yeah people knew me people would saw me with, with Johnny all the time and and um, doing the Indian guys with them Dutch Scouts and <clears throat> that type of stuff building his go helping build his go-kart mm -hmm. um, 
little dirt bike, and <clears throat> he was a special kid, so. Yeah. Um, I was, yeah, that was kind of something I wanted to ask, too. Like, can you tell me about Johnny? Like, I've been researching him for so long, and I, I just get, like, I, I don't know. I almost feel like I know him at this point. And he yep. just, like, was, like, was he a good kid? Like, like, what was, what, what was his personality like? Oh, great, great. He was, <clears throat> he was a little adult, really, mm-hmm. because I would have, we would have company come to the, come to the house, you know, adults and stuff. Like my sister and brother-in-law from Northwest Iowa, they would come down and he would come, pull up a chair at the kitchen table and sit there and, and, and be involved in the conversation. Oh. <clears throat> at, at 10, 11, and 12 years old. Oh. Um, Christmas time, birthdays and stuff, the kid would go out of his way to try and pick a special gift. Um, oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, if he was short a dollar, it's a half a dollar. Yeah, yeah. Or whatever the figure might be. Yeah. He said, I'm trying to get this for mom or Chris or Joe or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> but he would definitely go out of his way to do it, spend his last penny on on a gift. So. Oh, sweet. But, uh, and, and I'd say 90% of the kids at school like him. He had some idiots, you know, like they all do, you know. Yeah. He was tall. He was taller than most kids, which made him, at 12 years old, a little more clumsier than most kids. Mm-hmm. And he was a pretty good soccer player and, and getting ready to play flag football or football at junior high. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Chris Burks's older brother, who was Eric, I think was his name, Him and Johnny were fairly good friends, but they had their moments when they didn't get along with each other or whatever. But I was Indian guy chief, and they would come to our house and sit around the family room floor with their little Indian guy guests on and all that stuff. I know Eric was there and his dad was there, all that type of stuff. But we all got along um, you know, doing projects and doing fairs. Never did any camping trips or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh. Did a bicycle ride with their their whole class from Crossroads Elementary School, where they went from West Des Moines all the way out to Waukee and back, and had a little picnic out there. The whole class at, towards the end of the year, and uh, so. Johnny and I rode that thing out and back. A lot of the kids were there and say, I said, where's your dad at? Oh, he didn't want to come. So, but they <laughs> thought it was good that I was with him, so. Wow. Uh, do, you, do you remember when he was born? Do you, like, can you go back that far? Yeah, he was special. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, but we, we had boats. <clears throat> um from the time he was real little and even when we lived in Alberta, Minnesota, we lived close to a to a lake and we'd go out on the boat all the time 
And then in West Des Moines, just about every Saturday and Sunday in the summertime, we would take kids out, teach them how to water ski. Um, everybody had to bring a different friend for a different weekend and have picnics out there, and they they all enjoyed it. So. Hmm. That's sweet. Um, but, and that particular morning, his, his, one of his best buddies, Mark, was coming and actually showed up at the house um, wondering what was going on. Hmm. We're supposed to go boating today. Hmm. And, uh, yep. Um. Yeah, that's that's really. Uh, he just seems like he seems like he was a, just a really really good kid. So uh-huh. yeah, and um, I guess I I'm wondering um, I what do you, what do you think happened? I mean, there's a whole sort of storyline that the movie follows of like you know pedophile rings and being sold into pedophile rings and then. Paul Benassi gets involved and it's like it just grows and grows and grows and I'm sort of wondering do you think that he that 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 it that it's that big and that part of a bigger thing like he was sold into these rings or do you think it was just very simple like you know the I mean the the unfortunate truth is that in these situations most kids don't make it for a, a past a few days, so I'm wondering what do you, what do you think is probably what happened? Personally, I hope that he was not taking any of those rings or whatever. Mm-hmm. And if if the end result was to be the same, I wish that he his life was taken the very an hour after he was kidnapped if he was going to be put all through all that type of stuff. Yeah, because the horror that a young kid, boy or girl that has to go through something like that. Just unbelievable. It's just about as bad as all the little kids being separated at the border down there from oh, the absolutely. parents. And stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I guess, uh, is, is there anything that you would like to add, uh, to this podcast that I haven't asked you today? <clears throat> I really, really appreciate you doing this, and um, it's something that I hope, I hope there's an end result on it, and that someday we'll find find an answer. But um, appreciate you or anybody else that can give information. Um, you would you would think that somebody on their deathbed would say something. One day he showed up at her apartment, and. Then Weeks later, he called and said, "Have to please check out the the crawl space under the family room to see if his body's there." Yeah. So that's that's what we're dealing with. <clears throat> people, most people know that. So, and I I I do give um I give credit to Noreen for for being so vocal. I have to say because I mean I think if she hadn't um, been so vocal over the past thirty six years. Um, I wouldn't know about Johnny. Um, I'll think a lot of people wouldn't. And I think, um, you know, and I, and I have to say to her credit, she's done a lot of good too. Like she's, yeah. you know, definitely a fighter. And, you know, there's definitely no denying that. Um, 
So I think it's, um, you know, I, and I, 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 I give you both like credit. I have to say, you know, you're a father and you guys were both victims in this. So I really sort of commend that you're, have each been able to, you may not be together anymore, but you're, um, when you, you managed to go on with life and still, still live your life despite this. So that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. But Sarah, <clears throat> we weren't the victims. Johnny I know, was the victim. I, I know, I know. And I, yeah. I, that was, um, I think that was the thing that, um, that touched me about this case. When I first learned about Johnny, it, I mean, surprisingly, it wasn't that long ago. I guess when I was growing up, like I was born after this happened. I was born in 1984. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, I, I guess growing up, I, I had never heard of Johnny. Uh, I never really learned who he was and like a little less than two years ago. And I think when I first read about him, something about the story, it just it hit me in a weird way and it just really touched me. And I just I saw his school pictures like there's like two two school pictures that really get circulated a lot of him. And um, uh-huh. I just like. I look at them and it's like, ah, it's like something about it. It's just like so, so innocent at 12 years old. It just kind of really like hurt. It hurt my heart. And I I, I remember when I first learned about him, I couldn't stop reading about him. And it was like, oh, my God, I need to know. I need to know what happened. I like I need to know how this story ends now. So, yeah. But the one picture was the Iowa State Fair. Um, He and I went to the to the uh, fair together and got it one of these places where we get your picture taken or whatever mm-hmm. and I think we've checked all that out to see if there was any connection or all but he uh, he loved the fair so yeah um, most kids do but um, the one that was taking on uh, with his wagon and his bag I guess not the wagon but the bag and him carrying the bag Right. That was the very first first morning, uh, his first morning, Sunday morning, on his paper out. So mm-hmm. I went with him and had my camera. I said, here, let's take a picture. Oh, no, no. Come on, come on. Let's get a picture. So. Yeah, he can kind of tell because he's kind of like not really smiling in that picture. He's yeah. like, oh, okay. <laughs> Never realized that that sucker would end up all over right? the United States. Yep. So like I said in my intro, I found this to be eye-opening. John never believed Paul Bonassi. And actually, it's more than he just didn't believe him. He knew from the get-go that Bonassi was never involved. Think about it for a second. Paul Bonassi was from Nebraska. What business did he have in West Des Moines, Iowa? He said Johnny came up to his chest. Well, that's a natural assumption if you had to guess the height of a 12-year-old that you had never seen. But Johnny was tall for his age, around 5'8". And then come to find out, Benassi's cell was covered in newspaper articles about Johnny. And then there's the night that Johnny allegedly visited Noreen. Noreen has always maintained that Johnny did appear that night. But the lesser known thing that John talks about is that shortly after, there's a report that Johnny's body is buried under the crawl space of the family's house. 
As you heard us talk about towards the end, it's about keeping the story alive. As long as people keep hearing the name Johnny Gush, they can't forget it, and more and more people learn about him as time moves forward, me being one of them. And as I also mentioned in the intro, John is a father who lost his son at only 12 years old. He's very upfront, he's a straight shooter, so any theory that exists, of which there are many on the internet, that connects John to this underworld or implicates him in any way, it just simply shouldn't be. So now that we've started looking at this from the local level, looking at people like Wilbur Milhouse and Frank Sikora and Fred Sayer, who else was local at the time who was up to no good? And who out of them knew each other? That's what we're going to try and figure out in my next episode. Until then, you can reach out to me by email at fadedoutpodcast at gmail.com. Faded Out is also on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. We do also have a closed group that you can request to join called Followers of Faded Out. I'd like to also direct you to our Patreon page. By just giving a small contribution a month, you can help us grow this podcast further. It's a tiered system where you can get rewards back, and you can find that at www.patreon.com slash fadedoutpodcast. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. As always, Faded Out is recorded at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting in Farmington, Connecticut. Thank you for joining me for episode 21. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time.